Okay, as I said earlier on, we're looking this morning at encountering God. And uh, I guess that's something that we all want to do at all stages and all places in life. We want to be able to encounter God. And we've been looking at encountering God in the wilderness. We've been looking at encountering God in weakness. Uh, This morning it is looking at encountering God in in disappointment, or as I'm going to introduce it, in, in distress. But also then we're going to be looking later on at uh, uh, another week at looking at encountering God in our doubts. Just how do we encounter God? How do we meet with him? We're going to enter into the story or a testimony of one woman this morning. We're going to read 18 verses of 1 Samuel. But they're going to, I'm going to read them and they're going to what, take two, three minutes at the maximum. But what they sum up are years. Years of disappointment. Years of distress. This isn't something for Hannah that just uh, happened like that and was over. And then she simply moved on. It's something that she experienced in her life through many years. And sometimes when we come to scripture, we forget that. We read it and we think, okay, that just happened. Not realising something of the, the backstory to it, of what is happening around it. And you just need to look for some of the little clues that come through in the passage. Like in verse 3, it says, Year after year, this man went up to his town to worship and sacrifice. Reflecting that this is something that is ongoing for Hannah. We're going to be meeting a man, Elkahan. I struggle with these names, I'll be honest. I wish it was David, John and Paul and Peter, but (laughs) hey-ho, it's not. But we're going to be meeting a man who has two wives. One wife has been blessed with children. One wife hasn't. Hannah is childless. But her rival has children. And so there's tension there in the family. And there's distress in the family. There and in the family dynamics. I guess we can relate to this on many sort of levels. Disappointment, I don't know what that word means to you. I've defined disappointment as this. When something or someone... That can be myself, it can be another person, or it can even be God. Has not lived up to our expectations. When something or someone has not lived up to our expectations. I've defined distress as this. When someone or something causes us extreme pain anxiety and stress to the extent that it affects our physical and psychological well-being. And that again can mean many different things. 1965 was a significant year for me and it was a defining year as I look back, a defining year in so many different ways. It's the first time that I can recall when I came face to face with disappointment. A major disappointment. 
A disappointment that was going to scar my life for the next 25 years. It shaped how I saw myself. It shaped how I thought other people saw me. And it shaped my expectations for the future. However, looking back now, after 52 years, that disappointment became the stepping stone to greater things in the purposes of God. You may think, well, what was the disappointment, David? I'm just going to say that exam results do not define you. Exam results do not define you. It doesn't, they don't define who you are. They don't define your expectations. They don't define your future. They may help, but they do not define you. And it's perhaps one of the arguments that I have with the modern day education system is that so much is put into them so that in a sense people think, or young people think, that they define them. They define who they are. The exam was the 11 plus. That was it. It was the 11 plus. So instead of one route, you go down another route. And now 52 years later, I can look and I can think, yes, in the purposes of God, God has taken that and used it. But let's look at this woman, Hannah. Let's read. I'll do my best on the names. There was a certain man from Ramathamin, a Zuhite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Ilkalan, son of Jehoram, the son of Helu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penaniah. Penaniah had children, but Hannah had none. There we are, we've got it in stark reality there. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophanin and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elikan to sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to his wife, Penaniah, and to all her sons and daughters. See, it wasn't as if she'd just got one son or daughter. She'd got sons and daughters there. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. It's interesting that some of the translations have there that, that he loved her the most. So there's the feeling and there's the distinct idea here that Hannah was his first wife. He, she was her, his first chosen wife. She was the one who captured his heart for the first time there. And so, you know, he loved her. He loved her with all his heart. And then he goes on, and the Lord had closed her womb. It's interesting, is it? Because then he repeats it, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. 
we immediately come with a question, don't we? Why did God allow that? Why did God allow that? I've got no answer. You've got no answer. That's in the sovereignty of God. We come, don't we, to that question of God's sovereignty in our lives. God's rule over our lives. And so often we think that everything, because we're honouring God, yet everything will go swimmingly. Everything will fall into place. Everything will be as it will be. But reality is somewhat different, isn't it? But here we're coming face to face with the reality that actually God is involved in this situation. He's using it. Hannah doesn't know that because this is one of the the great benefits that we have of scripture that we can so often step behind the curtain, as it were. We know something that those whose stories at the time, they don't know. You know the story of Job, you know, and again that's a a story of suffering and how one, one man copes with intense suffering in his life. But there in the early chapters of of Job, we get to step behind the curtain to see what is happening in the heavens. And we come to see things that Job has no idea about there being a struggle between God and the devil. Or, if you like, testing there. And here we're getting a glimpse behind the curtain in terms of the sovereignty of God in this situation. That God is working there. Now we almost immediately think that if something not quite, I'm going to say bad, but if something not quite good comes our way, that can't possibly be of God. That can't possibly, God, God can't be involved in that. There. That diagnosis that comes out of the blue. That redundancy that comes out of the blue. That disappointment that happens. We were so counting on getting that job. We were so counting on being able to buy that house. And so many other things that come along to give us distress or or disappointments. But here it's sort of saying that, that God is active in it. God is working in it. What is it in, in Romans 8? Those words that I sometimes hesitate to quote. Because they get quote, quoted in some not easy situations. And uh, if I can just get them correctly... And we know that in all things God works for good for those who love him, who have called according to his purposes. Romans 8, 28. Do you notice what it says? And we know that in all things, not just some things, not just in those things because they're good things, or those things because they're the things that we expect to happen, or they're the things that we want to happen, 
But in all things, God works together for good for those who love him. God weaves them together for good, ultimately. God is at work in your life. God is at work in my life, in every aspect and at every point. Yes, it's been exam seasons, and I don't know what grades there are in exams nowadays, but I'm going to say, you know, God's at work and God is there, whether you've got an A star or whether you've got an E. God is working out his purposes, and God will work out his purposes. And I'm going to say to you that God worked out his purposes when you walked into that doctor's waiting room and that doctor's surgery and got something that you didn't expect was coming or told something that you didn't expect was coming. God is working out his purposes. One of my heroes of faith is a lady called Ruby Cross and I know I've used her before but she's a hero of faith for me. Ruby was agonised for many, many years. She was disappointed that neither of her daughters followed in the faith, that both her daughters had completely gone off the rails and were nowhere near the Lord. She was disappointed in that. She was disappointed that for so many years she struggled with illness. She struggled with cancer and quite a violent form of cancer, which made life very, very unpleasant. And she struggled and she cried, and it really hung heavy on her heart. And Ruby died. Within one week of her death, both daughters came to faith. Both daughters said at her funeral, that it was how her mother, how their mother had lived and how she'd kept her faith and how she'd stood up <coughs> under the tension and the distress of it all that had suddenly made them realise the truth about her faith. You see, God was working out his purposes Perhaps not in the way that we would have liked. Certainly not in the way that Ruby would have liked. But I guess there was so much rejoicing in heaven that day. Ruby would have been dancing. She'd have been dancing in her new body. And she'd have been dancing because her two daughters, who she so longed to come to faith, were now in the kingdom with her. You see, God's purposes working out. But here we are, we've got Hannah. She doesn't know that God has done this. And her, and her rival keeps provoking her in order to irritate her. Do you find that? Some things sometimes in life, disappointments, and then there are other people around you keep reminding you about them. Well, you didn't get the promotion, did you? I did. You didn't get an A star. I did. You didn't do that. So and so did. And the irritations 
there that come in that niggle away. This went on year after year. Again, it's a continuous story. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. That's what despair, that's what disappointment or distress can do to you. It can affect you, the whole of your physical being. Her husband, Elakan, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? He can't understand it. Now up to this point, Hannah has been completely passive. All we're hearing about is what is happening to Hannah, what is going on in her life, you know, and the struggle that she's having to come to terms with it all. But in verse 9, once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And so we've looked at the cause of Hannah's distress. But now we've got the response to Hannah's distress or her disappointment. She's been passive, or what we appear to be has been passive. But now she springs into action. Disappointment so often makes us passive, doesn't it? But why should I bother? That was part of my response as an 11-year-old. Why should I bother with education? Why should I bother to read? Or then we sort of thought, oh, poor me. Here's everybody else doing what they want, but I can't. You know. And we get into a self-pity sort of mode. And we allow that disappointment to define us. And you see the big defining word over my life for the first 30 plus years was failure. That was the big defining word over my life, was failure. And I allowed it to be. I allowed it to be. There, that defining point. And it can cast a big shadow over our lives. Now, Eli the priest observes her. her. Her lips are moving, but she is not speaking out loud. (coughs) Eli thinks she's drunk. I love that. I love that. When was the last time you were at prayer and somebody could see you at prayer and they thought you were drunk? And they thought you were drunk? It's like the day of Pentecost, isn't it? When the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples there on the day of Pentecost. People who didn't understand thought they were drunk. Thought they'd have one over the eight or whatever. You know, because there, that's what he thought. She was intoxicated. Yes, she was intoxicated, but not in the way that Eli thought. She was praying. And this is true prayer for Hannah. 
There's a brand of spirituality that says true prayer is about being quiet, being contemplative, having our hands together and being polite to God. But this isn't Hannah. And sometimes we have the implication that that kind of spirituality that is quiet, contemplative, hands together and polite to God is a much more mature spirituality. But it's not necessarily true. Hannah's prayer arises from deep anguish, verse 10. Bitter weeping, verse 10. Misery, verse 11. Being deeply troubled, verse 15. Great in anguish, verse 16. We read on, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought that she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. An interesting phrase that comes out there. Pouring out your soul to the Lord. She was pouring out her soul. You know, one of the reasons why I, and I include myself in this, or we, do not pray more is that we do not feel as if we need to pray. We think we can manage We think we know the answers. We think that we can get on without God. And so our prayers end up as a duty. As a duty, that five minutes at the beginning of the day or that five minutes at the end of the day or whatever it might be, where we replicate the same words over and over and over again. God bless so-and-so. God bless so-and-so. Please help so-and-so. Please heal so-and-so. And it's all... It's all very simple and straightforward. Prayer is not an option for Hannah. It was the cry of anguished disappointment and of a distressed soul. Crying from the depths of her very being into the situation. What is your soul? What is my soul today? What is in our soul today that we need to pour out to God? that we need to pour out. Tuesday evening at the prayer meeting, one person in the prayer meeting said, break my heart for what breaks yours. Comes in a song, doesn't it, that we sing quite frequently. Lovely song, fantastic song. Break my heart for what breaks yours. And it struck me that when, when that was spoken. God, when was the last time I allowed my heart to be broken? When was the last time that I allowed my soul to be poured out to God? There are times when I'm listening to people and I say, have you told God how you feel? 
And the answer is inevitably no. No, I couldn't possibly do that. To which I reply, why not? To which reply is, I, I, I couldn't. I, I, I couldn't. God doesn't want to know that. I just asked God to take it away. To which I reply, God cannot take it away until you give it to him, until you express it, what it is that you want him to take away. That pain, that distress, that anguish, that hurt, that disappointment, that struggle. What is it that Psalm 42 says, why, why my soul, are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? The psalmist is being real. I find it interesting that once Hannah has prayed, Elijah answers, Eli, sorry, answers, go in peace and may, God, may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. What a contrast. What a contrast. I find it interesting that once Hannah has poured out her soul to God, the reading tells us that she went on her way and ate something in her face. You could see it on her face. Her physical nature, her physical features had changed, was no longer downcast. It's really striking. Hannah does not yet know how God is going to answer her prayer. She's still childless. Don't run away. We know what happens. We know what happens. Hannah didn't. Hannah didn't. She was still in the middle of the predicament. She was still in the middle of the situation. But the point is, she has prayed. And now she can leave it with God. You see, she's a model of the truth of those words that I expressed earlier on in our service from Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now here's a challenge for you and a challenge for me. How about if we agreed to spend as much time in prayer as we do about being anxious? How about if we spent as much time in prayer as we do about worrying about things or about being anxious about things or about being distressed about things? How about if we turned it upside down? Because my guess is that the vast majority of it, I'm going to say the vast majority, I'm not going to say all of us, spend more time being anxious about things and worrying about things than we do in prayer. 
and pouring out our souls to God and taking it to the one who can hear our prayers and respond and meet us in our, prayer, in our situation. Hannah has presented her request to the Lord. Now she knows the peace of having poured out her heart in prayer to God who knows all things, to the one who is sovereign, and she can leave it with him. And she can leave the outcome to him. That's the important part. She can leave the outcome (coughs) to him. Let's pray. Father, we just come and we acknowledge again this morning that you are sovereign, that you are involved in every aspect of our lives, that there is nothing that is hidden from you and nothing takes you by surprise and you take all things and you weave them together in the good purposes for your plan. And so, Father, we come and we submit to your purposes. We submit to your sovereignty. We submit to your will in our lives. Recognising that all things work together for good, ultimately, to those who love you, to those who are called by your name. Father, thank you that you meet us in our disappointments, you meet us in our distress as we pour out our hearts to you. In the power of Jesus' name, amen. We're going to work.